morning we are going to be again in uh, Hosea and Hosea chapter number 13. And we're just about ready to wind up this book and uh, close it out. And I tell you, God has been working in my life, showing me some things about who Christ is, uh, what God is doing in my life, how he's been at work in my own heart and in my own life. And uh, this morning, the verse that we're going to be primarily looking on is, besides me, there is no other Savior. And the Lord has a way of showing us exactly who we are, what we are, because His Word is alive. And His Word reveals to us as people exactly what we are. And um, so they're all excited back there because it's working this morning, so... Good job, guys. Thank you. Um, and I tell you, at the, at the center of all of the Christian life is the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. It's, it, that is exactly why we do what we do. If we ever get to a place, uh, even here at Pleasant Ridge, that the things that we are doing is not based upon the gospel or for the sake of the gospel, then we've missed it. So everything that we do, whether it be outreach or whether it be any type of event or any type of worship that we do, it should all be centered around Jesus Christ. And here in Hosea 13, we're going to see that. We're going to see the gospel message right at the center of it and how God is trying to draw his people back to himself. We have been looking as we've been going through this book about time after time that God is calling his people. He's relentlessly pursuing after his people, trying to call them back to himself. And time and time and time again, we've seen how the people have refused to listen to God, to listen to his tender voice, to listen to his, his compassion. And they have not been willing to return back to him. You see, when we think about the gospel, we think one question that comes always to our minds is, why? The shocking message of the gospel is the fact of, why did Jesus come to this earth? I mean, we really don't have anything of value to give to Christ. There is nothing good about us that we could ever offer him. And so that question comes to our mind, why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus be born in a very poor family? Why would Jesus live a life of, uh, under Roman uh, government and oppression? Why would Jesus spend the time of, of knowing that he was going to be ridiculed and mocked and, and all those things? Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus be willing to go to the cross and, and suffer and die and, and, and for our sins and, and experience the, the judgment of God upon himself? Why would he do that? It's all because God had a purpose in that. And that was to redeem us. His great love motivated him to do that. It tells us in Romans 5, 8, but God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
So when we look here at Hosea 13, God is going to give us a story this morning. And this story has a past, it has a present, and it has a future. And God is going to use some examples here of trying to show the nation of Israel exactly what they have been pursuing after other than God. And I think that can really be summed up in all of our lives here this morning. That all of us pursue after something else other than God himself. If you can remember Hosea here, he is a prophet and he's been used by God to to speak to the people. And this has been century after century that God has been sending his prophets to the nation of Israel trying to get them to return back to God. Hosea here is known somewhat as the deathbed prophet because he was pretty much the last prophet of the time before the Assyrian Empire would come in in 722 BC and destroy the nation of Israel, carry them off into Babylon. And so God is mercifully pleading for his people to return back to him. And he's going to use a story this morning to show us exactly what he wants to do. So through this story, we're going to see how the message of the gospel fits in with the whole story of even Hosea 13 and even throughout the whole of the Bible. And so we'll look at that here this morning. So let's look here at a few verses here. First of all, number one, we're going to look at these stories. Look what he says here in Hosea 13, verse number one. First of all, he's going to give us a story about idols. He says, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel. Now, in the first verse, we see the past. He's telling us about the past of things, of how they used to be, about how Ephraim, how Israel used to be. He said, in the past, Ephraim, in the past, Ephraim, there was trembling, and you were exalted in Israel. In other words, they had a fear of God. They, they, they knew who God was and they, they were concerned about what God thought about them. God had blessed the people and given them victories over their enemies. God had graciously given them in this exalted position. So after God had shown his kindness to them, you would think that the people would be grateful. We would assume that the people, that they would remain true to God. But look what ends up happening because of the past, because of this exalted position that Israel had. And God is giving us a story about idols. Look what happens because of this. He says this in verse number two, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols, skillfully made of their silver, all of them, the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice, kiss calves. Now this is the present God is telling us. This is presently what's going on in the nation. He says, in the past, you used to be exalted. In the past, you trembled before me. But now, because of your exalted position, look what's happened. You've went after Baal. You started making false images and false idols. You've been going, seeking after craftsmen who'd be able to uh, craft some image that you should be able to worship. And so when the people turned away from the Lord and ran after other idols... There's a personal betrayal that became involved in their lives. 
And God illustrated that through the Hosea the prophet by asking him to go and marry a, a woman, a prostitute, to show the, the adulterous relationship that, that they had with, with God. You see, when God gave the people the Ten Commandments, the first two were, does anybody remember? What was the first one? Should have no other gods before me. And what was the second one? Should not make any graven image. And see, God is bringing this back up to them. And he's saying, look what you've done. Not only have you made other gods these bales for worship, but he says, now you've made graven images for you to worship. And God says, you have betrayed me. They ran after other gods, false gods, and they made these idols. They skillfully made idols, the work of craftsmen. Look what he says. He says, idols skillfully made. I mean, it wasn't just some hunk of junk that they put together. You ever been to a yard sale and you see what people make, these crafts and stuff, and you're like, I wouldn't give you any money for that. (laughs) I mean, this was stuff that was skillfully made. I mean, they spent time with it, honing it and, and polishing it and shaping it. They spent time with it. You know, an important question that we must all ask ourselves is, what is worthy of our worship in life? What is worthy of our worship? You know, as human beings, we worship everybody in here. We all worship something. There are things in our lives that we spend time with. There are things in our lives that we, that we devote our whole life to. What is worthy of our worship? You see, when we make those things, we make those things that are worthy of our worship, we make those things dependent upon us. Not we are dependent upon those things, but we make those things dependent. We depend upon them for our life. Therefore, those things are not worthy of our worship. I mean, you think about this, them as they're, they're crafting these things. Could these things deliver them? No. Could they provide them with the things that God did provide them with? No. You remember the story, the husband and wife, they're sitting at the kitchen table. And the, the husband's saying, I've given you this, I've given you this, I've given you these things. And what did, what did the wife say? She says, no, Baal gave me those things. Baal gave me my clothes. Baal gave me my wine. Baal gave me my food. And God's just like, no, listen, I am the one that has provided you with these things. They had made those things what they depended upon for their entire life. This is why he commands us not to have any other gods before us. Because God does not want us to depend upon anything else except him. He is the only one that can provide for us. He is the only one that can sustain life for us. And the nation of Israel missed that. They depended upon idols that were skillfully made to be able to provide for them. You see, he is not restricting us from something good here. He is directing us to what is best. And that is God himself. There's nothing wrong with having things. But it's when those things become so important in our life that we depend upon them other than God. And God's saying, listen, I'm trying to give you a story here showing what you were like in the past and showing what you are like now. It's just stuff. 
and it's not worthy of our worship. If our greatest excitement is in stuff, then we are enslaved to that stuff. We just had a garage sale yesterday, and I cannot believe the kind of junk people bought at our garage sale. I mean, I'm just willing to throw this stuff away, and people were willing to give me a dollar seventy-five cents, whatever for it. Why? Because it's stuff. I didn't want it. I wanted to throw it away. But I figured, hey, if I can make a few bucks on it, might as well. But we all worship this stuff that's in our lives. We think we need it. But we really don't need it. We need God. That's what we need. So whatever brings us the most excitement is probably what we worship in life. If stuff is more important than Jesus, then something is definitely out of whack in your life. You need to realign yourself with what is important to find out, listen, is Jesus my primary worship in my life? God here clearly says that this is a practice that he found disgraceful and shameful. Notice what he says here in the text. It says, it is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice, kiss calves. These were idols that they had made. I mean, this is how bad it is, God. I mean, this is supposed to be the people of God. These are supposed to be the people that are supposed to be sharing with the other nations around them how great of a God that they serve and worship and what he's done in the past, parting the Red Sea and allowing them to go into the land of Jericho and the walls came down. This is supposed to be that nation. And what are they doing? Taking their children, sacrificing them, and kissing a fashioned metal image. God says, I find that disgraceful and shameful. They would kiss these idols as a sign of their devotion to them. And because the people had turned against God, God would soon then send his judgment. And this is where we get into the future. So this story here, he tells us, he tells us about a past, the present, what they're like. And notice what he's going to say here about their future. Look what he says here in verse uh, number three. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist. Or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor. Or like smoke from a window. Other translations read, like smoke from a chimney. So now we see here the story of the future. There's four images here that God uses to describe their future judgment that's going to come to them. First of all, he says a morning mist. As soon as the sun uh, it comes up, it dries and burns off. Just like how you go outside, you got that dew that's on the grass out there. He says, the sun comes up, it's gone. He says, the dew that early goes away, the chaff that the wind quickly blows away, it just, it's gone. He says, like smoke from a window or a chimney quickly dissipates and disappears and it's gone. God says, this is the judgment that's going to happen to you, this nation of Israel. This is what's going to happen because you've been worshiping these idols, because you've been depending upon idols. God says, I'm going to bring judgment upon you. The point is, because of their sin, God would quickly destroy them. He would quickly bring their end to destruction. Sin always has serious consequences, does it not? You can think back and look back on your life before maybe you knew Christ and the things that you were involved in, the things that you participated in. 
And you could see how that sin ravaged your life and how it made a train wreck of your life. Or even now as a believer in Jesus, maybe you've been participating in any, some type of sin in your life. And you can see how it's, how it's eaten the years and the months and the days of your life away. It's brought decay in your life. And it has serious consequences. So in this first story, God tells the people they were looking to idols, man-made gods, that they were trusting in to save them. But the idols were powerless to save them. They could not do anything. Their idols could not save them. They could not hear them. They could not listen to them. Their idols were powerless. Now God is going to show us another story of what they've been trusting in. So he says, you've been trusting in idols. Look at the second thing that they've been trusting in. He's now going to give us a story here about riches. Look what he says here in Hosea 13 verses 4 through 5. This is the past. He says, but I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. So the second point we see here is a story about riches. And God's saying, in the past, Israel, he says, I knew you. I was the only one that you knew. Remember the story there in the book of Exodus is the people, they were under bondage, under that Egyptian bondage. They were building treasure cities for Pharaoh. And what were they doing? They were crying out to God to save them. God says, I've heard your prayers. I'm going to deliver you. He delivers them from the the hand of Pharaoh. He performs this great miracle. They cross through the Red Sea. The walls of water come down, destroys the Egyptian army. They go into the wilderness. God feeds them. God gives them water. He provides provisions for them. I mean, this is something they knew God. This is the past. He speaks of the close and intimate relationship that he had with them. But look what ends up happening. He says, now, in the present, he says this, but when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. Present now, when God richly provided for them, they trusted in their riches, and they forgot God. They forgot everything about him. They said, oh, look at all this abundance of these riches that we have. We really don't need God. But it's really God is the one who gave all of that to him. Because he just wanted to richly and lovingly bless them. They forgot about God even though he is the one who provided for them. Because they forgot God and turned from him. God will now show us the future of what's going to happen in their life. Look what he says here in verses uh, number 7. As he tells us now the future, verse 7 through 8. So I am to them like a lion now, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. It's pretty interesting sometimes to see some of these. uh, Maybe you've seen it before on some of the videos of people that accidentally have fallen into the, uh, uh, the zoo uh, enclosures like a lion or a panda, something like that. You know, Sometimes it is an accident, but sometimes they're like, oh, I just want to go touch that nice little cuddly panda bear. And then the panda bear is like, ah, you know, like, no, it's, it's a wild animal. 
And you think about this picture here that God is giving these people. He's saying, look, because you have forgotten me, he says, I'm going to be like a lion. I'm going to be like a leopard. I'm going to be like a bear. And I'm going to rip you apart and shred you to pieces. The point here is to have God come against you in judgment is a very dreadful thing. This morning we were just talking about this in Sunday school. And the fact that those that do not know Christ as their Savior, the Bible says that they will be cast into the lake of fire. That's it. That's a very dreadful and horrible thought to think about. And so for those that do not know Christ, that is, that is a, a waiting judgment. It's not going to happen someday. They're already under the judgment of God now. And so God is willing to forgive anybody who, re, who returns to them and, and trusts them as Savior. But those that die without Christ, that is a judgment of God. And just like here in the future, this is something that would happen. And it did happen. Their lives were destroyed. You know, sometimes we look at a, a verse like this and we think, you know, shouldn't God, I mean, he's supposed to be loving, supposed to be righteous. And, you know, I mean, shouldn't he just allow them kind of like off the hook? I mean, it was kind of a mistake. I mean, come on. But in reality, think, put yourself in, these, in, in, a, in a situation like this. Imagine you have a loved one, maybe a child, maybe a... Uh, spouse and that spouse or that child was brutally brutally murdered and the person that did it they caught him all the evidence pointed exactly to him there was a confession made yes I did do this and they went to a court setting would you be satisfied if maybe the victim of that person were to just say well you know Judge, shouldn't you just let this person off the hook? I mean, shouldn't you just allow them to just kind of smooth things out? You'd be completely outraged if a judge were to do that. Why? Because you demand justice. You demand that righteousness be upheld. And so when we think of something like this, we, we look at it, we say, well, you know, that's, those are strong words. But in reality, God has to uphold a standard. He has to uphold righteousness because he is God and he does not change. And God has to uphold the, the standard of righteousness. And so in a thing like this, God is going to execute his judgment upon his people because they have broken his laws. God is not just going to allow that just to kind of be swept under the rug. God is going to hold them to it. So just here, a real quick recap here. God is giving us a story. He's telling us these things about people that have been trusting in other things. They've trusted here in their riches. They've trusted in idols. And so far, none of these things can help them. None of these things can deliver them from the judgment of God. Third thing here in the next verses, we're going to see another story that God is going to use and show them the things that they've been trusting in other than God. Look what he says here. He's now going to give us a story about kings. Look what he says here in verses 9 through 11. He says, He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now 
is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers? Those of whom you said, give me a king and princes. I give you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath. You see, what is interesting here is that the people were always looking for something to trust in. They were seeking out something else to trust in, whether it be idols, riches, or even in this case, some type of military power, a king, a political system. And we saw in other verses as we looked through Hosea, they were looking toward Assyria and they were looking toward Egypt for military protection. And God says, where's your king now? He says, you all wanted a king. I gave you a king, but I took him away. You wanted all these princes. This is during the divided kingdom. And you have the ten tribes, the the northern kingdom. And you have the two tribes, the southern kingdom. And king after king arose and they slaughtered each other. They assassinated each other. All this stuff was going on. They were searching and looking all in the wrong places. And God faithfully, time after time after time after time says simply, just return back to me. Return back to me, Israel. Return back to me. But they're like, ah, you know what? We're going to go try something else over here. We're going to try to go do this. We're going to go and try to do that. We're going to try maybe, maybe kind of finagle this. Maybe this will work. And God says, you're just wasting your time. I think of so many times in my own life that when there's a situation that arises in my life, how many places and people and things that I run to other than God first in my life. And then my wife will sometimes say something very spiritual and say, did you pray about it? No. (laughs) Don't you think you should do that first? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And these people were trusting in other things other than God. See, is this not what describes all of humanity? All of us are looking for something to trust in. All of us. It doesn't have to be an idol or riches or, or a military type power. These are just the things that they were trusting in. But they were not returning to God for their help. And God says, I'm willing to help you. Just return back to me. You see, many people often trust in their success and their accomplishments. But if you measure yourself by your performance, you will never measure up. Because there's always going to be somebody else that is better than you. And the Bible says that we should never compare ourselves with others because it's not wise. Many people often trust in their riches thinking that their money can protect them. Many people trust in the U.S. military thinking that we are safe and secure because of our military protection. Maybe you've been putting your hope in other things other than God. Can I tell you, just simply turn to God for help. God is willing and he is able to help you. As we looked at it last uh, few chapters ago, that God stands there ready, ready to help you. And God was ready to help them, but they would not listen to him and they would not return back to him. There's only one person in whom we can find salvation, and that is God himself. In Hosea 13, 4, we read this verse. He says, you know, no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. Look here again in verse number 9. He says this in Hosea 13, 9. He says, for you are against me, against your helper. Are you against God? You say, no, I'm not against God. 
I'm here today, aren't I? That doesn't necessarily mean that you're for God. I'm talking about in your own private time, your own time when nobody else is around, and there are situations that arise in your life. Are you against God? Are you putting your trust in your own intuition more than you are God as your helper? God says, I want to be your helper, but you are against me. Salvation and help can only come from him. But again and again, the people here refuse to return the Lord. Now, in these last few verses, God has given us these stories here. He says they've trusted in their idols, they've trusted in their riches, and they've trusted in their kings. But in these last few verses, God is going to show us of how helpless these people really are and how that they refuse the help. And he's going to give us an example here. And this just is amazing, this example that he tells us. Look what he says here in the last few verses. In Hosea thirteen twelve through 13. God says to Israel, you have trusted in your idols, you've trusted in your riches, and you've trusted in your kings. You are so unwise, you will not let me help you. And he uses this example. He says this, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Now, for those of you that have children or have had children, you know that when birth comes, it's not a planned event. It's not like you see on uh, TV or the movies, you know, uh, like the old Disney movies, like, uh, oh, honey, okay, we're going to go to the hospital. You know, it's like, get me to the hospital. When childbirth comes, you don't stop it. Having, uh, being part of, of the birth of, of our daughter, Evelyn, it was such an amazing experience. And, and to be able to, to see that child born into this world, I mean, there's nothing like it. And God is saying an example here. He's saying, You've been trusting in all this stuff. And he's saying the birth pangs are coming. He's saying the child is ready to be delivered. But you are acting as if a child does not want to come out of the womb. You won't come out of the womb. Now how serious is that for the child and for the mother if that child does not come out of the womb? Very serious. God says you are acting so unwise in this that you will not present yourself before me. He says you're refusing to come. And he says this, just like the foolish baby that refuses to enter the birth canal, the people foolishly refuse to return to God. And the result of that will be fatal. He says, you will not come. You're so foolish in that. And so God is now going to show us, and he's going to speak of his power in the next few verses here, of what he can do for the people if they are just willing to present themselves to God and return to him. 
Look what he says here in these last few verses. He says this in verse number 14. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Now God here is almost mocking death. He's mocking it because death cannot stand against him. God's saying, look, if you refuse to present yourself to me, he says it's going to be fatal. But he says, I have so much power, God says, that I have power over death. I have the ability to to not allow you to, to go through death, God says. God makes it clear that death will not win in the end, that death will not have the final say. Because God will be victorious over the death. Now, does this verse sound familiar to anybody where he says, Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, shield, where is your sting? Does that sound a little familiar? It should. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul uses this verse as he's talking about the resurrection of Christ. And he's talking about how Jesus rose from the dead. Here's what Paul says about it. He says this in these verses. He says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul teaches that just as Jesus rose from the dead, that those who have put their faith in Jesus will too rise from the dead one day. And if you have, there came a time in your life when you turned from your sin and you trusted Christ as your Savior, then you too have this victory over death. It's such a sad, sad thing. I've done funerals for people that have not known Christ as their Savior. I mean, we're talking, there's, there's not been any type of religious type upbringing there was there was no pastor there was no time when they turned from from their sin and turned to Christ and the family's there and this person has died guess what death has had the last word they're not going to be raised incorruptible and god clearly states here i am ready and willing to help you If you just return to me, because I have so much power, I have even power over death, God says. And if you put your faith in anything else other than Jesus, death will have the last word. You see, this is the problem that we have been seeing through the book of Hosea. The people refused to return to the Lord. They put their faith in idols. They put their faith in riches. They put their faith in kings. But they refused to return back to the Lord. And so this is a spiritual battle that all of us encounter every single day. If you know Christ, you have the spirit of Christ living inside of you, but you still have a battle that's going on. Paul says, the things that I want to do, those are the things that I don't do. And the things that I don't do, those are the things that I want to do. He says, there's this battle, this this, this spiritual battle that's always going on. And he says, the only victory that I have is through Jesus Christ. And I have to rely upon him. I have to trust him. And so these people here in Hosea, this was a battle that was going on in their life. They would not return back to God for their help. And God graciously, repeatedly, persistently, lovingly, compassionately 
pursued after them time and time and time after again. But they refused to return back to the Lord. Because of this, God's judgment surely would come to them. And let's look at those last few verses of how the judgment would come to them. That's what he says here. He tells us this in these next few verses in Hosea chapter number 13. Look what he says in verses 15 through 16. He says, Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up, his spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. And they shall fall by the sword, their little ones, their babies, their boys and their their girls, those little precious babies shall be dashed into pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. This is the coming judgment that God says is going to happen and it did happen in 722 BC. God sent the Assyrian Empire in and they ravaged the land of Israel. They went into the, to the temple and they stripped the temple of every precious thing that they had. They took it all away. God says this is the judgment that is going to come upon them. Their children and women were slaughtered. You say, well, what does this have to do with us? The judgment of God is real. It's not just something that's made up. It's not just some kind of a a story. It is a real thing that will happen. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the judgment of God is already upon you. It's something that, that, that that will happen in your life. For those that know Christ as our Savior, we have Jesus. And guess what he's already done? He has already taken the judgment of God for us. He was crucified on the cross. He took upon himself the whole weight of all of our sin upon him. It says that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so we have Jesus Christ. And if you don't know Jesus, I would encourage you to turn to Christ, repent of your sin, and turn to Christ. Trust Jesus as your Savior. You see, the judgment of God was the reason why Jesus came to this earth. We ask the question, why? 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 Because of the judgment of God. And so that whole story weaves its way throughout all the Bible. You have the judgment of God, and God says, I am going to judge sin harshly. What are we going to do? God says, I will send my son Jesus to take your sin. I will send my son Jesus so that you won't have to experience the judgment of God. The cross of Jesus is the thread that ties all of Hosea 13, all of it together. It brings it together and it shows us that there is a way that None of us have to experience the judgment of God. Jesus' passion gave us the opportunity to be saved from from the judgment of God. And Hosea 13 describes to us God as our Savior and our Helper. And the greatest demonstration of this is the cross of Jesus Christ. 
He demonstrated his love towards us, and he took the judgment of God. So Hosea 13 here hints at the way that God will be victorious at death. And it was on the cross where Jesus defeated death, and it was through his death that he defeated the grave. He defeated all of death. And for us that know Christ, we have a great victory in Jesus Christ. But if you don't know Christ, I would just plead with you to turn to him, trust Jesus, trust Christ. Let's pray together.